This is the Visionary Collective podcast, helping visionary, purpose-led entrepreneurs and leaders come together to activate their biggest visions and have the unshakable confidence to build a successful and fulfilling life and business that makes a difference in the world. I'm Lisa Mitchell, and I'll be sharing everything you need to create the foundations and growth to build your legacy. You know you are here to do something bigger as part of the Visionary Collective. So welcome to this episode, and I am delighted to have Katie Cottomar here today, who's the founder of Luna Daily. This month, we're talking all about challenging norms and creating new, and Katie couldn't be a better example of challenging norms and challenging an entire industry, actually. So we're going to talk about that. So Luna Daily is about microbiome balancing body care for all your skin, even your most intimate, and for all stages of womanhood. But actually, those products are just the start. Katie's on a big mission to connect women to themselves, to connect women to each other, and to open up a whole other conversation about women and their bodies. So I'm excited to have this conversation. We've chatted a little bit, Katie, haven't we? But I'm excited to have this conversation to see. I think this is going to inspire a lot of women listening to this conversation today. So Katie, tell us a little bit about your story. And I I know this has been in your life for a long time, this idea of Luna Daily. It comes from your personal experience. So tell us a little bit about your personal experience and where did Luna Daily come from? Uh, So, well, my... The background of Luna Daily and the sort of inception of Luna Daily really starts with my own personal experience. So I'm somebody that has spent most of my career in the beauty wellness space. So I started up my career at L'Oreal. That was really my my training ground and entry into the marketing world. And most recently, I was at Charlotte Tilbury uh, as global head of brand. But the idea for Luna Daily actually came well before my career. I was 19 and I'd been studying in India and I came home and I was really unwell. And so I was put on a course of antibiotics for six weeks. So for anyone that's ever been on antibiotics, even one course can be pretty intensive. And it had a fundamental change to my entire system. My skin microbiome, mm. my gut microbiome was was completely different after that intensive course of antibiotics. And one of the things that happened is I got really bad thrush. Now I'd never had it before. I can still remember today the feelings of shame of embarrassment, of confusion. And critically for me, from that point onwards, I wasn't able to use traditional shower gels, body products, other products to care for my intimate skin. But I really resented these, you know, niche use, synthetic, outdated, highly stigmatized products designed for your intimate skin, which still for the most part sit within a category called the feminine hygiene category. And the reason I do inverted commas is because even the naming of the category, I think has such negative connotations. Fast forward 15 years and my career in the beauty wellness space. And in the middle of the pandemic, I suppose, you know, the pandemic, I think had a huge impact. Well, I know had a huge impact on all of us, but really considering what we wanted out of our life. And for me, I realized that life is short and there would never be a good time to go and do something, but I would end up regretting not giving something a go than giving it a go. So I quit my job and set out to create Luna Daily. And so you, you beautifully introduced it for me, Lisa, but our strap line is head, vulva, knees and toes, microbiome balancing body care for all your skin, even your most intimate. And so we quite uniquely bridge the intimate care category and the wider body care category with products as per the name you can use everywhere. And my big vision, I suppose, is, well, the big vision is to inspire women to connect to each other and their entire bodies. And yeah. we do that 
through globally differentiating a new category of products, but also through normalizing conversations and revolutionizing education for women. Uh, Because ultimately, I can go into a bit more detail about the research we did, which sort of informed the insights behind the brand. But ultimately, it all starts with revolutionizing education. So we are taught much better about our entire bodies, including our intimate skin, but also normalizing conversations between women of all ages and stages. Yeah. And I think when we connected, we we talked about this term feminine hygiene, which just... I'd never really thought about it until we were talking, but there's something like it's very clinical, isn't it? And like there might be something dirty going on that we need to make hygienic. It has a very odd connotation, doesn't it, when you start to think about it? Yeah, I think I have lots of issues with it. I think the first is that if we if we go back to where the category really in, was it really incepted, the inception of the category would make more sense. If we go back to where the inception of the category ha- took place, it started off sort of two categories of products within it. You know, first of all, products that are designed for if you're on your period. So typically they are products you might purchase on a cyclical or monthly basis, you know, things like pads, tampons, etc. But also the very historic, if you look at the very historic advertising campaigns of these brands, it was very much around making women and people with vulvas clean. And mm. even the word hygiene, you're right, implies something is dirty, needs to be cleaned. But also, you know, for so long, it's marketed to women that you need specific products for your intimate skin, which you just don't, mm. you know. If there is one thing that people listening to this take away over everything else, it's that the vulva and the vagina are different. And for too many mm. of us, myself included, we weren't taught the word vulva. You know, 80% mm. of women actually can't label the vulva on an anatomical di- diagram. And that the vagina is totally self-cleaning and never needs to be washed with anything, including water. It has its own natural scent. All of that is very normal. And the vulva is your external intimate skin, quite similar to the skin we have under our armpits. So it's typically why people grow hair on their intimate skin under their arms. And, you know, it's, it's just skin. And so I think I don't agree that the industry has marketed for so long to women that you need specific products because you don't need specific products for your vulvas and you definitely shouldn't be using products inside your vagina. But I do understand why a woman would want to use a product to care for her intimate skin because I do. And that's not because I want my vulva to smell like roses. It's not because I believe in industry fads. It's just a personal preference. And I think for too long, we have told women and people with vulvas, this is what you should be doing. And actually, I think it should be an individual choice that if you want to use a product to cleanse your vulva or to care for your vulva, just like you do on everywhere else your body, just like I do. And for 64% of women, they do. That's totally cool. If you want to just use water or you want to use nothing at all, just like it's totally cool to use nothing at all anywhere else on your body, that's also cool. And I think what I want to do is provide information and a choice to women. And, you know, my big vision actually is that the feminine hygiene category doesn't exist. You know, there will always be a place for products, for periods, for for general menstrual wealth, for menopause, for incontinence, for motherhood, for pregnancy. But in its current existence, I don't think it needs to exist. And so my big vision is that we get rid of it altogether. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about shame. You mentioned shame. So just tell us a little bit about that early research. And I imagine that that sense of shame or embarrassment or those kind of emotions were coming up. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's sort of three main pillars that our research findings fell into. And the first was that unfortunately, this shame and confusion starts with a lack of education. So 87% of people we spoke to were not taught about intimate care at school. You know, lots of people remember maybe a day with a tampon lady coming in or being taught how to put a condom on and that was about it. The result of which is that we're confused. 
So every 0.6 seconds, somebody Googles, how do I wash my vagina? Which considering vagina inside bit, self-cleaning is really quite worrying. I mentioned, you know, most people being unable to accurately label a female anatomical diagram. And really confusion is what starts the cycle of shame because we're not yeah. taught about it. And therefore, if we experience something as an individual, we're not really taught to talk about it with each other. The second is that unfortunately for too many women, their body washing products are causing them to have gynecological problems. So like for me, for 43% of women, uh, their washing routine has caused them to have a gyne issue. And so the most mm. common gyne issues are things like thrush, bacterial vaginosis, itchiness. And unfortunately, all of those things are shrouded in shame because it often presents itself with pain, a different smell, a different discharge, all of which for a long time have been considered not normal and therefore embarrassing. And then the final thing is that the incumbent brands and the category that has existed for so long is so associated with the problem that it sort of is this self-perpetuating cycle because, and it's, and you know, because it's true because it's that typically most people that use a product in that category. So if I was to think of one of the big brands in the category, most people only use them because they've had a problem. And so 65% of people we spoke to admitted if they saw one of these products in the shower, they would assume something's wrong. Uh, And so it's sort of this big cycle. I mean, the, the one that always really gets me is that when we asked women and people with vulvas what they were most embarrassed to talk about, sweating and odor, how much they earn, their sex life or their vulva, people are most embarrassed to talk about their vulva. And in a, you know, a fairly British society where things like how much you earn in your sex life are considered quite embarrassing, the fact that just talking about a body part is, is deemed more embarrassing, I think is really sad. And yeah. my view is that the more we normalize conversations and the more we normalize using anatomically correct language, the more we remove stigma and shame. Yes. There is a, a wonderful author, author called Lynn Enright who wrote a book called Vagina Re-Education, who I adore and her book I think everybody should read her book, but it had a profound impact on me. And there is lots of research to show by using euphemisms and not anatomically correct language, we reinforce shame and stigma about body parts. And so, you know, I I think I am now testament to you normalize the language and and you remove the shame that, you know, a few years ago, I was even embarrassed about sharing my story. And I thought, gosh, if I can't share my own story, then I've got no chance in helping other people share theirs. And now I feel no shame. I, yes. you know, and I really want to create a future where no one feels like I did when I was a teenager and more yeah. people can feel like I do now, that I am not em- embarrassed to say that I had thrush. I'm not embarrassed to say the word vulva. If anything, I probably try and get it into every conversation. <laughs> uh, but I now feel no, no embarrassment and shame. Yeah. But Importantly, for me, what normalizing a conversation doesn't mean is being activistic and meaning that everybody has to be ready to shout the word vulva or to see vulvas on their social media. It's just, it might be that we inspire somebody to have a conversation with their mum or with a friend or yeah. with a sister. And yeah. I think that's really important in terms of our positioning. We are very positive and inclusive and, and not activistic in our approach, appreciating mm. that just like everybody's womanhood experience is different everybody's level of comfort about talking about a topic is, is different and that's okay. Yeah. And I love, I love this kind of inclusivity of course, across all aspects of womanhood, you know, and I was thinking about this this morning cause I've got, I've got an 11, well, she's nearly 12, 12 in November. So clearly starting to go through those kind of changes and they're starting to, I think the boys at school are starting to notice that some changes are happening and all of that stuff. 
And then I, I'm actually going through the menopause and that has its own issues coming up too. And so we're kind of either end of the spectrum. I said, she's going to be in puberty. I'm going to be in menopause. This is going to be hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, even, you know, I was thinking about the conversations around menopause and, you know, all of those things as well. You know, the whole spectrum of women's health and not wanting to, you know, for women to claim that they're in menopause and it's good and you're still female and sexy and all of those things through to like the, the school age kids not being ashamed about, you know, I can remember boys at school saying, you know, saying that girls smelt if they'd got their period, you know, that kind of thing. So I was really thinking about, gosh, all those, that, that whole range of experience that we maybe talk about to our close friends, but we're certainly not, you know, loud and proud about. No. And it was why when we set up the brand, we decided that we would be for women of all ages and stages. Um, you know, today we have three ranges, our original range for daily care, our fragrance-free range for sensitive or allergy-prone skin, which is why it's perfect for motherhood, and our hydrating range for dry or dehydrated, rehydrated skin, which is why it's perfect for perimenopause and menopause. Because for too long as well, I think there has either been one size fits all, that, you know, there is this category that is dominated by a single format, a wash format in a fairly synthetic still dominates, but it also assumes that people's skin types are the same. And if we think about every other category, like hair care, facial skin care, you know, even your foundation type, it caters for different skin types and different skin needs. And what we found in our research is two things. First of all, the same shame, embarrassment and confusion exists all through womanhood, but particularly at those life stages of motherhood and menopause, you know, either not being taught about it you know, finding out on your own or feeling quite alone. Yes. Uh, but secondly, different physiological things happen at those life stages, which have a fundamental impact on your skin microbiome. So, you know, yeah. I'll take one example that, you know, if you're pregnant and everyone says you're glowing, it's typically because hormones like estrogen are high, high and therefore you produce more sebum. So your skin literally looks physically as glowing. Typically for perimenopausal women and menopausal women, your estrogen levels are dropping, which is why it's more common. It's not for everybody, but it's more common with menopausal women that their skin might feel drier or flaky or more sensitive than previously. And so what was really important to us is that we cater for women throughout womanhood because, you know, whilst it's so important to me that we, a big part of our communication strategy is to actually speak to younger women because first of all, we can see that's where the problems arise. Typically, you know, as women go through pupil girls into puberty, there are specific changes that happen, again, related to hormone balance that mean they might be more sensitive than they previously were, but also routines change. It's typically yeah. the time that girls and boys move from having family bath time to typically showering on their own and therefore mm. routines change. But also we feel that if we can if we can speak to women at this age, you know, before problems arise, before that shame and stigma is really deep rooted, then they can stay with us through life. Because similarly, yes. what we found in our research is that too many women felt that at those later life stages, motherhood and menopause, lots of them were already having a bit of an identity crisis of, you know, who am I? And this has really changed. But also then having to engage with brands that either were underserving or spoke to them in a way that they didn't feel resonated. That, you know, yes. the amount of women that spoke to us, the city of hit the menopause, or all of a sudden there's this massive brands and like scream menopause and you're this and you're that. Or if you, even if you Google today, menopausal woman, a white, gray haired, sad female comes up and that is just <laughs> not representative. Uh, and it's not representative yeah. of, of society. It's not representative of how lots of women feel. And even, 
even down to kind of a product perspective, the category of products available is not representative. Yeah. We're um, one of the founding members of an incredible company called Gen M, and they are the leading menopause brands. Um, the leading menopause brand to support you know, brands, workplaces, and just under 50% of women can only name three menopausal symptoms, mm. but there is over 48 symptoms. And given that 51% of the population is very likely to go through the menopause, I, I think that's shocking. But I also think there's such an opportunity there. You know, I, I remember Lisa when, you know, my mum went through the menopause, but I, you know, I think I only asked my mum about the menopause about four years ago. And, you know, I said to her, what was your experience like? And she said, oh, it was 10 years of real hot. It was real hell, actually. And I said, you know, why have you never spoken about it? And what we sort of worked out is that the age mum was going through the menopause was the age we were all sort of fleeing the nest and going to university. And after that moment, you know, typically when I see my parents and my family, it's always in like you know, we're always going for dinner or we're meeting up or it's quite short stints. And so we never really get into the those sort of conversations. So there was never really an op- a natural time, I think, for her to feel like we could speak about it. But now I feel, you know, God, I wish I knew more about it. I understood it more because if you were asking me to make you a cup of tea in the morning because you were struggling to get out of bed, if I'd known it's because you were having insomnia, or if you asked me to help change your sheets because you were having night sweats, I might have been more forthcoming. I hope I would have been more forthcoming. But I yes. also think we've therefore got an opportunity to educate about the menopause, not just for menopausal women, but for everybody else around them so that everybody can support them. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? That's been my, I've got two sisters who went through menopause early and my mum went crazy in menopause. I can remember it distinctly (laughs) and had no support, no help, no nothing, but was literally like, I can remember my dad coming home and going, where's your mum? And we were like, we don't know. She just left. (laughs) She just like you know but it was yeah, never discussed yeah. it was kind of like this sort of like hidden obviously we didn't know it was menopause at the time but it was like like mum's gone slightly crazy we're not sure what's going on you know and then you know for myself I haven't had a huge amount of symptoms but as I've gone on through it I'm like oh do you know what there are some things here I they're just not the big things and I haven't been terrible and I've not felt awful yeah. so it's probably okay and actually you know it, it's it's such a yeah, I'd say conscious of a daughter going into puberty as well and having this whole sense of sisterhood around the thing, you know, and also that the men folk in our life also support us, right? And are educated enough to be able to support. Yeah. It's not just about women, is it? It's about men being able to understand what's going on and be supportive in the right way too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And just in the, you know, the same way, once you have your first period, life changes and in lots of ways changes for the better. I think, you know, actually you're only menopausal for one one day. You're in the menopause for one day. Most of it, you're in perimenopause and postmenopause. That one day is, you know, 12 months after you stop having your last period. And life after menopause can be, and is for most people, so wonderful. And mm. I think, you know, I read this book and there is a 51% chance that people born today will live to 100 and so this mm, idea wow. that, you know, post-menopause is in any way the end of someone's life or that they are, you know, so many women today, the stats that they feel invisible or not listened to, you know, I think we have such an opportunity to change that narrative that Absolutely. to support women going through it because for lots of people it, it is tough. There's no denying that for lots of people it is tough. So having education around the symptoms and how we can best support people, but also then life after that I hope that by the time my generation gets to 
it's actually not very far away now, but gets into perimenopause, we A, are empowered with knowledge so that it's not felt scary or it doesn't blindside us, but B, can feel excited about, even if it is a struggle during it, to be excited about what comes next. So... Yeah, I definitely think it is. Che- we're definitely feeling, you know, this this movement is here to stay. Yeah, I was having a rant on Facebook the other day about this term midlife and midlife women, and these all these groups popping up for midlife women, and I was like, I d- I don't even know what that means, and it just and again, it's a kind of like slightly sad challenged individual. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't get it. It's like how can you categorize people purely on age when there's so many other factors, you know? And one woman in her 40s or 50s might feel completely different, have a different experience from another woman in her 40s and 50s. So we just have to be with the breadth of the experience, don't we? And not stereotype and not characterize, is that the word? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a really interesting, there's a really interesting debate at the moment around language about how we speak about people. Mm. Uh, And that's everything from gender to inclusivity and I mean, my personal view is that to be as inclusive as possible is is the right approach. But, you know, for, for me, I will always talk about our brand is for women and people with vulvas. And for me personally, yes. I, I identify as a woman and lots of our audience does. And so I don't want to get rid of the word woman. I think it's a really beautiful, important word and identifier, whilst also making sure we're inclusive to people that don't necessarily identify as a woman, but might still have a vulva. But I think it's the same yeah. as as we talk about any stage in womanhood and I, I, I tend to agree actually that midlife is I don't think necessarily helps because you know somebody might be perimenopausal age 30 and if they're going to live yeah. to 70 this is not really accurate that it's midlife it's, it's no. the first third of their life uh, yes. so I think being as inclusive as possible and recognizing that everybody's womanhood experience will be very different but that if we can normalize a conversation lots of conversations between different ages and stages, it does big step forward to helping remove stigma and shame. Yeah. So I, I love just hearing you talk about this. I love hearing your passion and, you know, the breadth of this vision that you've got. You know, this is, you know, it's not just, oh, create some products and create, no, solve a problem. It's not about that, is it? It's about creating a different conversation and opening out this whole empowerment. I, d- I don't particularly like that word, but you know what I mean? Like empowerment of women and their bodies and our experience and talking about it positively and embracing that whole experience, you know, as women, people who identify as women. So what's it been like for you? Because I know, as you said, you've worked for the big brands, you've worked with L'Oreal, you've worked for Charlotte Tilbury and those guys. What's the difference to you of doing what you're doing now? I'm really curious about your experience now versus what you've done before? It's a great question, Lisa. I think the first is that it sounds a bit cringe, but it genuinely feels like my entire life has been leading up to this moment. You know, call it serendipitous that I've ended up having most of my career in the beauty wellness space after having this idea when I was 19, but sort of living subconsciously in my mind or whether that was completely subconsciously planned, I don't know. Uh, mm. I did also spend four years in between Laurel and Charlotte Tilbury at a plant-based food company called Bowl Foods. Mm. I was the fifth founding member. And so that four years was so critical in terms of teaching me the skills as to how to run a business. You know, L'Oreal, Charlotte Tilbury, Beauty Wellness, but that was really scrappy startup scale up, uh, phenomenally yes. successful business. We became the fastest growing plant-based business in the UK, but that was definitely integral to my skill sets today. But I think the main difference between all of my experiences in Luna Daily is 
the enjoyment, the passion and the enjoyment I have for it. Uh, mm. And that is partly because it's, it's, it's my baby. It's, it's uh, you know, something that I have personally built, but it's also the impact I can see us having. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do is just to read, you know, most mornings I will go in and read customer reviews that we've had. And, you know, there's only so passionate somebody can get about a new mascara or a new micellar water, but reading the reviews we get from people around our products. And, you know, these are really from all ages and stages. We will have somebody writing that they bought the everything oil for their mum who struggled with really dry skin to somebody buying the spray to wipe for their daughter because she started a period. And that means that sometimes going to the toilet on her period, she wants something more than just dry tissue to clean up. And so yeah. reading the reviews, you know, it's, it's my favorite thing to do. And so I think the main difference for me is my own personal passion and enjoyment mm. that I get from it. And the other main difference is more of probably a business focus that you know, there is startup life has a pretty grueling reputation that it can be hardcore, you know, rates of burnout and the difficulties of startup life. And so having experienced burnout myself and having been in high pressure environments, I made a very conscious decision when setting up Luna Daily, the type of business I wanted us to be and how, if we're mm. going to have these values that we live by for our customers, we're going to have the same values internally. And that Luna Daily has got an opportunity, not just for being a force for good for women everywhere, but also a force for good for my employees and how I mm. wanted to set up Luna Daily. I feel is very different to some of the experiences all of us have probably had and the importance I place on that is, is higher than it's ever been. Mm. Oh my God. You can't, I honestly, that makes me so happy when I hear people say that <laughs> I've been banging this drum about organizational culture and, you know, business being a force for good in the world, right? Yeah. And I think it's very easy to say, but actually to to do is a combination of commitment and just action. You know, one of my mentors, she's called Emma Heal and she's the MD at Lucky Saint. She's a phenomenal woman. And uh, I remember, I always remember there's a slide she has in one of her presentations that says culture eats strategy for breakfast. And yeah. you can have the best strategy in the world. You can hire the most incredible people, but culture is not something you can just force. It's not something you can just sort of whip up or throw money at. It's something you have to create. And it also makes business sense to do so, right? If you have yeah. people that are happy and healthy and have positive brain health and want to come to work, they're going to, you know, deliver more for your business. And yes. I just think it's, it's not difficult to do. And it's really, really important to do. And I don't yes. think you need to overcomplicate it. You know, for us, when we started, we just included our team in things that were important to them. So our benefits policy is actually co-creating with the team. Because my view is a benefit's only a benefit if somebody feels it is. You know, if somebody yes. is, if, you know, pensions are really important to the team, but having, I don't know, a cycle to work scheme isn't, then it's not deemed as a benefit. Yeah. And how we can make proactive movements, proactive choices as a business. Last week, we were talking before I came on today, Lisa, that last week, we all, myself included, did a mental health first aid, a two-day course. And it's the most phenomenal training I have ever been on because the objective of it is to, it's not to mean that we are all therapists, but we are now all mental health first aided, aided trained. And what it means is that we will be there to spot the signs. We will be able to better spot the signs of somebody in our lives, be that professional or personal that is struggling with mental health, be able to give them tools and support uh, to help them, 
And, you know, if mental health is, you know, many more people each year will die from mental health than they do in road accidents. You know, mental suicide is unfortunately the number one cause of death now in men under the age of 50. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's such, it's such an important topic for everybody, but I feel particularly passionate about it because it's a topic that is highly stigmatized and it fits very symbiotically with our bigger mission of normalizing conversation. Yes. And so, yeah, that's definitely the, the other thing that is, I feel most different about, you know, running my own business, how I want to run it and it to be a force yeah. for good. Yes. And I think this is one of the brilliant things about being a startup, isn't it? Being a new organization versus trying to change things, you know, at a big organization like L'Oreal, for example, you know, that you, you, you're starting with a clean slate and you can create something that's true and powerful for now. And we were just talking before, weren't we, about, you know, post-COVID life and how things have changed. And, you know, that, that you know, I feel like business is still finding its way with all of that. You know, how do we want to work and how do I want work to interact with my life? And what's the balance that I want? And, you know, the, all of that is still playing out, I think, and it will for a couple of years. So the chance, that, the, fa- the fact that you get to create it at a relatively small scale versus one of the big FMCGs yeah. means that you can create something from scratch that's right for now, right? Totally. And I think the single biggest, in my opinion, the single biggest positive impact that the pandemic has had on the workplace is that we've proven we can do things differently. Yes. And we, I think we would be silly to not continue that. You know, we have, we have a beautiful office in central London But at the moment we are in two days a week, every Tuesday, Wednesday. And, you know, we've asked the team, you know, would you like to be in more? How would people feel coming about third day? And the response was, you know what? We think the balance is perfect. We're really, Mm. really efficient on the days we're at home. We travel in and we have great team time on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. We always finish at one o'clock on a Friday every single week. There's loads of research to show us all having a longer weekend would be better for our mental health. And even that, you know, we asked the team, would you like to do a four day week or four and a half day week? And the team actually said, you know, actually the idea of finishing, having to wrap up everything on a Thursday is a bit stressful. But if we have yeah. Fridays, no meetings, just to do our admin wrap up. And then at one o'clock on a Friday, I send out our Friday feels, which is our kind of Friday highlight for the week. And if it goes off the weekend, it was very much done, you know, what is driven by myself and my personal beliefs, but also asking the team, you know, and yeah. asking what they would like rather than forcing a way of working. And I think, you know, there is a caveat that, you know, clearly business performance is really important and it's really important, particularly in the startup world, because if you're, if you're not performing, then there is not an endless supply of cash and you have to yeah. have healthy revenues and healthy cash flow to survive. But, you know, if, if those metrics are in the right place, which I do believe by hiring phenomenal talent partners with a great place to work, there is no reason they can't be, then, you know, wh- why not? You know, I have, mm-hmm. I've never had higher trust in a team. You know, I don't, you know, and so why not? And, you know, we've been, we've been four and a half days from the very beginning. I've, I've never seen a negative impact and it, you know, I've definitely seen a positive impact of, yes. you know, we coming up on a Monday morning and the team can all talk about what they did on their Friday afternoons and had a bit of a longer weekend. So I think, I think it's what I'm saying is I think it is possible to do things differently. Yeah. And I think it's a lot easier yes. to do it from the beginning to your point. Yes. So you don't have to unpick, you know, undo, undo things. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I've been to big organisations where they've got these very complex kind of engagement strategies and all these things. And I always say to them, you know, if, you, if you're if you having to create an engagement strategy, you've done something wrong earlier on. 
you know, because really if people are connected to the brand, connected to the vision and the mission, you know, doing a job that they like, that they feel acknowledged, you know, all those things should be built in. It shouldn't really be a strategy that you add on at the end. It should be built into the way you live life and, you know, that the internal brand and the external brand match together because that's often the disconnect, isn't it? It's like we look great out here, but in the culture in here, it's not, we don't necessarily feel the same. So that you're creating that, um, yeah. I call it co-creation, right? So it's not just you going, this is the way this business will be. It's kind of, oh, okay, so I feel like this. Do we think Fridays? Do we not think Fridays? How does this work? How does that work? And you're feeling into it as it evolves and grows. Because I guess when when you recruit another, I don't know how big you want to be, but another 20 people or another 50 people, then the whole thing starts to change again, right? It becomes a bit more challenging. Absolutely. And, you know, I was very fortunate that I've also had brilliant brain supporting me in those early stages, particularly on areas like policy and ways of working. So one of our advisors, incredible guy called Ian Hardy, uh, and he was um, VP of learning and development for the likes of LVMH, Sephora. And so he's got, you know, years and years of ex- incredible experience um, in helping guide the, the appropriate structures for the level of our business. But I think mm. that also needs to be mar- married with, as you said, just, just organically getting feedback from the team and you know for example when when we recruit a new team member every single person in the team will meet that person before we offer them a job because Mm. you know culture driving a positive culture particularly in a small team is so important and therefore having everybody you know they will people will go through the a normal three-step interview process but then they will also meet everybody else to check that culturally Mm. there's a great fit not just yeah. for us as a team, but also for that individual that, you know, making a new move is so important to everybody if you're making a new move. And so I see, you know, recruitment as a two-way process. It's a two-way interview that we are interviewing them, but they are interviewing us. And yes. also making sure that everybody in the team feels really included as part of that process. Yes. And again, this is this kind of sense of co-creation, isn't it? Is that if I'm coming to you, it has to be right for me that I feel passionate about your mission and I can contribute, but you also need to feel the other way that you can do. It's right culturally and for skills wise, I guess. It's is a sort of 360 process, isn't it? Exactly. So what's been what's been the most challenging bit so far? Without a question of a doubt, fundraising, fundraising right. in a fairly difficult economic climate. And, you know, I'm saying that with a big old smile on my face because it was a really easy answer. And, you know, there is no denying that fundraising is difficult for any business. And in a way, quite right, because Mm -hmm. there are more startup businesses than ever, more people seeking investment than ever. And particularly the last 24 months, we've gone through a real shift in the fundraising market. You know, pre-COVID, I think... Definitely investors would argue, but I would probably say the same, that valuations were fairly out of control. Mm. Uh, That yes, a massive valuation means you don't have to give away as much of your business for lots of money, but it means that it's not necessarily sustainable because if you need to raise money again, it's more difficult to justify an increased valuation. But particularly for women, there is no denying, you know, 98.2% of VC funding goes to men. So that leaves Mm. less than 2% for women. And doing it in an economic climate like it was last year was really tough. Yeah. And, you know, I I knew it was going to be tough. So we actually started fundraising four weeks after being in market. So you couldn't have much less time because you do need to show 
bit of viability in, in your minimal minimum product you've developed or brand you've developed. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was really tough. Mm. And you know, so it's it's the single hardest thing and most proud thing I have ever done uh, mm. fundraising for this business because I never I never wavered actually in my belief of the viability of the brand. There were definitely times where I wavered in actually are we going to be able, am I going to be able to do this? But also because it's something we're not taught. You yeah. know, a bit like mortgages, politics, we're not taught at school. So it's something you have to completely self-teach or learn from others around you. And it's also a really difficult life skill if you've never been in that position before. You know, I, I say this caveating that I come, I am very privileged, you know, and just by my my background and, you know, my my, my ethnicity, I know therefore I am actually privileged. Even if I am a woman, I'm I'm also very privileged versus mm-hmm. lots of other people. But it's fundraising is something that nobody nobody teaches you how to do. And yeah, so it was it was really difficult, really, really tough. And this feeling that you are running out of money, you know, I've I've never been in that situation before because I've always made sure my outgoings are less my outgoings are less than my incomes, you know, yeah, I've yeah, always made yeah. sure I can pay rent. And it's that, that's, you know, it's this feeling of, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to pay rent next month. And so that was definitely the hard, the hardest, hardest mm. part of this journey. Mm. You know, one of the brilliant things about being a, an entrepreneur and a founder of something that you're passionate about is that you can talk to that passion, right? And, and, you know, you have that, you know, it gets you through challenges, doesn't it? If you feel passionate about something. So I imagine in all of that it was kind of like, well, I have to get the money through. I have to do it because I have to do it, right? This is important. This isn't just about me and creating it, you know. And- well, yeah, I think <laughs> if I was to say the three things that got me through, the first is that we had phenomenal momentum behind the brand. So as we were, mm. the reason we were raising money or one of the reasons is because we had landed big contracts with big retailers. So yeah. the biggest of which, which has already launched is Sephora North America. So I, I was able to have real conviction when I was saying there is a reason you need to back this brand, not just because of what we've delivered to date, but because we're about to be the first ever UK intimate care brand stocked in Sephora North America. Yeah, and amazing. Sephora North America or Sephora as a whole being the trailblazer retailer, not just for our category, but for beauty retailers as a whole. Mm-hmm. I was able to have pretty convincing conviction that we were brand to back and during the fundraise process those 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 and other retail partnerships came to fruition mm. so i definitely had you know i suppose credibility in, in in raising in raising capital the second is have have real real mates around you and i don't just mean mm. your best friends i mean people that really really understand what you're going through so other co-founders sorry not other co-founders other founders of businesses that have fundraisers yeah. had have other co- other founders that have fundraised uh, have been through that journey, but also really understand the position you're in. Yes, and unwavering belief. I remember listening or reading, I think, an article about the founder of Canva, and she she pitched to a hundred VCs, and mm. the hundred hundredth and one hundred and one VC was the one that said yes. And Canva, mm. I think, is valued now at the highest valued female run business ever. And wow. I remember reading this article as I was in the fundraising process and it was what I really needed to hear because, yes. you know, so many people will tell you no. For me, it was difficult because l- nobody really said it's a bad idea. 
it, it would have been easier if people had been like, you know what, awful idea, don't think you should do it. It was actually more difficult that people were saying, brilliant idea, amazing. You, you're just that bit too early. We just want to see a bit more traction. So come back to us in yes. six months. Yes. And I think having an unwavering belief and resilience to keep going mm. because you don't need 100 VCs. You just need a few that believe in you. And a lot of it is about right time, right place. It might not be they don't believe in your idea. They're just going through a fundraise themselves or they've just invested in a similar business. Yes. And so having having unwavering belief, I think, is, is yes. really, really important. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I love that. That that is a that's a brilliant point to kind of start to wrap up this interview because I, I feel like of everything, you know, I always say that visionaries and people who are changing things and disruptors, you're doing something outside the norm, right? So you are going to be more future focused than most. Not everybody is going to get it, right? <laughs> Lots of people will tell you you're crazy to give up your great job and to launch on this like unknown journey, you know? <laughs> so having that unwavering belief and having support around you and people, as you say, not just your friends who will want to protect you to a degree, but actually people that go, no, okay, that's this is the journey. Look at these people that have done it. I've done it. They've done it. You know, you've got a great product. Go for it. Give you yep. advice is so important because otherwise it's quite a kind of, can be quite a pressured, lonely place to be, right? Being a founder and setting up this thing that you know in your heart's the right thing. But, you know, as you say, you've got to kind of get over those hurdles, haven't you, to keep it going? Totally. And I always remember an old boss of mine said, you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And that is the yeah. nature of, of innovating. And that is the nature of, of being a startup in a world where there are mm. big brands, big incumbent brands with lots of money. And I think alongside belief, having a vision and a purpose beyond what you're selling is, is so yes. important because anybody can sell product, whether that is a service yes. or a physical product. And the, the vision beyond product is, is so important. But yeah, and I think... We're not fortunate, but is well, we are fortunate. What I was going to say is that I also believe a lot of success of startup life is is luck and timing. Mm. But mm. I think had I launched Lunar Daily even a few years ago, it might have been too soon because this movement has really gathered pace the last couple of years and is, is definitely here to stay, both the customer movement, but also the retail landscape, which is so important, I think, to brands when you are launching into categories like beauty, where lots and lots of customers are purchasing these sorts of products in retail environments. You know, we are an omni-channel yes. business. And I think timing and luck, bit of luck, a lot of luck is is really, mm. really important to, to success yes. as well. Um, yes. And and being on being at the right time the right time for a category. You know, if somebody had said a few years ago, take the refillable deodorant market, a few years ago, I think most people would say, oh, I'm not going to pay more than a few pounds for deodorant. And now look at the success of brands like Wild and Fussy you know, refillable yes. deodorant that's delivered through your door. And so yes. being on being on the edge of, of a new category and being on the edge of growth and innovation is going to feel a bit uncomfortable because if it was already well known and if it was already well understood, everybody would be doing it and there wouldn't yes. necessarily be that white space opportunity. So getting yeah. comfortable with the uncomfortable is is really important. Yeah. And you know, isn't I find it fascinating because I find I, I hear this a lot and I would say it's true of my own experience too that the thing that's driven Luna Daily has probably always been there or been there a long time anyway, right? As you say, from your own experience. And then there's a point in time where it sort of comes together, you know, where you think, actually, do you know what? I'm going to do it. 
you know and and ideally as you say that that desire matches with the external environment so it's the right timing but it's actually been brewing underneath for a very long time you know yeah. and 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 yeah. your experience that you've had also helps you do it because as you say consciously or subconsciously yeah. you equipped yourself with all this beauty knowledge and startup knowledge which enabled you to create this thing. So there's something beautiful about the timing of it all and the, you know, depending on your beliefs in a bigger power or not, you know, it's kind of, it does feel like there is some kind of orchestration yeah. going on there in the background, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, keep it coming. Keep, keep that, yeah. keep all of that coming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Katie, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And, you know, if uh, beyond kind of, obviously, we'll put links to your website and everything on the show notes for this episode. Is there anything else that you would particularly like people to know about or get involved in apart from just, you know, just like obviously buying your amazing products? But beyond that, is there anything that you would like to say or to involve people in as you on this mission? I think the first thing I would like to say is, is thank you to you, Lisa, because it's people like you connecting with us as a brand and me as a founder that are helping so much share our story and therefore helping to normalize the conversation. So a huge, huge thank you to you for having me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think, no, the only other thing I would say is that I hope us talking today might inspire someone to have a conversation with somebody in their life. That might be asking their mum or somebody else about their menopausal experience. It might be chatting to a friend. It might be chatting to a daughter or a brother or a father. And so mm. if if off the back of this, somebody listening ends up having a conversation with somebody else in their life, then that for me is, is huge success. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I, I love your passion. I love your big vision. I think it's so important and it does feel like divine timing to me you know that these things that this whole movement is gathering pace so it's amazing to see the products to see what you're doing but also to feel what you're creating internally too because you know say so I do believe that business is a force for good in the world and I've seen this potential for a long time so to see particularly female founders walking the talk raising the money you know and creating different businesses where people are acknowledged and supported and have good mental health and good balance, I think is, you know, that that is making me very happy today. So thank you for that. Oh, what a wonderful start to the week, Lisa. I so, know, exactly. Yeah, thank you ever so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. And good luck with it all. And keep in touch with us. Let us know how it all goes. And uh, I wish you well on your journey. Thanks ever so much, Lisa. Thank you for listening to the Visionary Collective podcast with Lisa Mitchell. If you want to be part of this exciting, bigger movement, come and join other amazing visionary purpose-led entrepreneurs in my free Facebook group, The Visionary Collective.